Arguably, neoliberalism can happen without actors who call themselves neoliberal. So we can get neoliberalism in a space without Friedrich von Hayek or Milton Friedman, because ideas travel and ideas change and ideas diffuse and have an influence. Our hypothesis is really that in order to understand how marketization processes could be received by a very different specter of social groups in the Nordics, which included things like, for instance, certain professional groups or certain trade unions and parties that were not only parties of the liberal right, but also social democratic parties, for instance, or green parties, feminist organizations, immigrant communities. We need to work with a very wide idea of the social alliances of neoliberalism. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and this is the third episode in the theme on global governance. And today I am talking to Jenny Andersson, professor in the history of ideas at Uppsala University. During the spring of 2019, Jenny Andersson was the guest of the principal here at SCAS. Jenny Andersson is now based at Uppsala University, leading a multidisciplinary research program called Neoliberalism in the Nordics, developing an absent theme, financed by Riksbanken's Jubiläumsfond. And this is also exactly what we're going to talk about today. Jenny Andersson is also going to share some thoughts on the possible dangers of digitalization of archives and historical material, a topic close to her heart. But first, it is time to hear more about neoliberalism in the Nordics. And as always, I am looking forward to learning more. Very welcome to SCAS Talks, Jenny. Thank you. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Jenny Andersson. I'm professor of the history of ideas and science at Uppsala University. And I came back to, to Sweden after more than 10 years abroad, and in particular in Paris working for the French Research Council, CNRS, as a research professor, and also at Sciences Po, which is one of the of the main social science universities in, in Europe. Very nice to have you with us today. So very broadly, before we go into details, what is your research interest about, your main research focus? So I trained originally as an economic historian, and I worked as an historian in many different interdisciplinary settings. So I would say today that I see myself as a political and intellectual historian. I worked a lot on transformations of social democracy and so marketization in, in contemporary political ideologies. I worked a lot also on future visions in the post-war period. And in fact, not only on the visions, but also the content on forms of future planning, including methods of prediction. So my last project was a book called The Future of the World, which came out with Oxford. And in fact, was what I did just before I arrived at SCAS in January, uh, two years ago. And the program that I currently direct, I guess, regroups many of the different interests that I have, which is in the field of political economy, but in an historical perspective. So I'm interested in the historical constitution of ideas of the economy. And I'm interested in ideas of societal organization. If we look back a little bit, how did you get interested in this whole field from the beginning? Why did you decide to go into economic history and then your current research? 
I'm interested in what I would like to call the social life of ideas. So I'm interested in how ideas work and how they give rise to societal constructions. Economists tend to consider the economy as a material construct. I think we could very well argue that it's also an ideational construct, so we can historicize across the centuries different ideas of what it means to to be involved in economic exchanges. We can historicize the different limitations and borders of the field that we call economy, as opposed to, for instance, society or culture. We can also think historically about notions, so key concepts in in economic activity, like, for instance, the notion of capital or the notion of worth and the notion of value. And all of those things are things that I've been always fundamentally interested in. And now you're leading a research program called Neoliberalism in the Nordics, developing an absent theme. And um, we will talk a lot more about this today, but I have two very basic questions. You call it an absent theme. Why has this been absent before? One of the things I would like to say is that this is a program consisting of eight universities and 12 scholars, but we're historians. And so we regroup the different historical disciplines, including economic and social history, political history, intellectual history, and cultural history inside of this program. And so we don't mean by absent theme that we have no studies of neoliberalism or that we have no studies of things like marketization. So in fact, we have quite a lot of studies on market processes in various domains of social life. And the neoliberalism literature is a very large and vital literature. What we really intended with this developing an absent theme is that historians have taken quite a long time to come to the neoliberalism complex perhaps because historians often have a lag. So we always like to have 20 or 30 or 40 years to, to ongoing processes so that we can say that we stand at a distance, which is, of course, more, much more difficult with contemporary materials. But we, we do feel that these decades from the 1970s onwards, and in fact, it could be really an open question when we should begin our study, but these decades today really do need to be addressed by historians because I think there is a general sense in the Nordics, and not least in Sweden, actually, in public debate, that something very transformational has happened. And it's very often a question that I get, oh, can you please explain what did happen to Swedish society? So there's a very public sense that something very profound happened. And in fact, we also have a lot of, of materials from these decades that we haven't really worked on. But I think that what we're lacking for this period is an historical synthesis. And now we're not simply in the program trying to do an historical synthesis, but we're trying to provide an historical account of this era. And we could very well toy with other notions than neoliberal. It could be the time of the market, or it could be maybe the era of the individual, I don't know. But neoliberalism is for us now a, a very good label to work with because it opens up a lot of new questions for historians to this particular time period. And my second basic question is, why is it important that we understand more about this from your perspective as an historian? Because we know that we are living through an historical period. And we can argue about how to define that historical period. And I will always accept that there are different accounts of what this historical period meant and how to label it. But I think that one of the fundamental observations that we have today from social science is that we live in an age of the return of great inequalities. 
And many scholars in the social sciences would put that in the context of neoliberalism and they would argue that several of the key institutional changes that we would refer to with the, with the label neoliberal, so the marketization of welfare policies, changes in taxation, for instance, from progressive taxation to less progressive taxation, benefits for industrial life and entrepreneurship, a global turn in income distribution toward the higher percentile of the, of the income stratum. Those things are very important processes. In fact, if we look at them sociologically, we would be forced today to compare them to other great societal transformations, such as the one in the late 19th century. And so, of course, that lies behind and that motivates this program. However, as historians, we're not simply interested in those in those real-life social processes, we're also very interested in what they mean. So what forms of meaning have they been ascribed? How do they change ways in which normal people, so ordinary citizens, live and construct their everyday lives? How do they change the way that people think about the relationship between themselves and their horizons of expectations and societal and collective ambitions? So those are some of the questions that we're trying to ask in the program. Yes, and we will talk a lot more about that. So now to your research program, Neoliberalism in the Nordics. When I start these interviews and discuss talks, I like to start with a sort of explanation of the terminology and concepts. And while I was preparing, I discovered that this is actually part of your research question. So what is neoliberalism and how is the term used? A lot of the time, intellectual historians do not like to post the definition a priori to the research because we are interested in how concepts gain their meaning that is part of the object of study. Nevertheless, it's kind of useful to have some sort of understanding of what we mean. And one of the things that I find useful is a citation that I would have from one of my program colleagues, Nicholas Olson, and he says, Neoliberalism involves the mobilization of consumption and competition as part of an effort to criticize the traditional institutions of political democracy and replace these with the promotion of the dynamics of a market capitalism. And that's a sufficiently vague definition so that it works quite well for us. But of course, the precise definition is, is partly up to the historical actors that we, that we study. And what we do know already from the from the existing historical studies of neoliberalism is that the definitions of neoliberalism are very wide. So they vary as much as definitions of any other politicalism, conservatism, liberalism, etc. But I guess one of the things that I would say as a political historian is that there are many different liberalisms across the 19th and 20th century. And in much of that historical perspective, what we like to call neoliberalism, and which is usually anchored around an idea of the market, so a market metaphor, and then this market can be a supreme objective, so a template for the ordering of social life, or it can be an instrumentality, so a kind of vehicle, for instance, for other forms of freedom and mobility. So those are two different things. But mainly with what we call neoliberalism, that market idea has a very dominant space, a very dominant role. And therefore, neoliberalism is different from many other historical accounts of liberalism, which post other supreme objectives and saw another set of instrumentalities and also usually gave the market a more 
conscribed and more circumscribed and a more confined role in social life and would not have argued, for instance, that entrepreneurship could fix all societal problems and was a virtue in itself. But historical versions of liberalism would probably usually have argued that entrepreneurship and economic activity is a kind of societal virtue, but always within forms of limits posed by the public good. So I think that's a useful way of thinking about neoliberalism. When you look at these concepts, how do you actually do that? What do you look at to come to some sort of conclusion or to advance your understanding? So we look at a very wide range of materials because one of the ideas in the program is also that neoliberalism is not always confined to actors that we can think of easily as neoliberals. So a solution to this definitional problem comes from conceptual historians who have studied neoliberalism from within the standpoint of neoliberals themselves. So there's a very famous study by by Philip Moravsky and Dieter Pleve, where they call neoliberals a thought collective, which consists of people who themselves professed to the idea of being neoliberal. And that creates a fairly small collective of neoliberal thinkers, a tight-knit community of neoliberal thinkers. We're proposing that this is not the most useful way to study neoliberalism in the Nordic context, because the networks of people who themselves argue that they were neoliberals, they were to a large extent, not all of them, but to a large extent, they were dominated by Anglo-Saxon networks and by some of the big Anglo-Saxon universities, for instance, Chicago, by some groups from Germany, for instance, that we tend to call the Ordo liberals, or by some French and Dutch or Belgian groups. But the connections to the Nordic space is more complex, so that's one difficulty. And the other problem with, with this confined conception of, of neoliberalism is that Arguably, neoliberalism can happen without actors who call themselves neoliberal. So we can get neoliberalism in a space without Friedrich von Hayek or Milton Friedman, because ideas travel and ideas change and ideas diffuse and have an influence. Our hypothesis is really that in order to understand how marketization processes could be received by a very different specter of social groups in the Nordics, which included things like, for instance, certain professional groups or certain trade unions and parties that were not only parties of the liberal right, but also social democratic parties, for instance, or green parties, feminist organizations, immigrant communities. We need to work with a very wide idea of the social alliances of neoliberalism. And that creates sometimes appalling results because it means that we kind of stick the label of neoliberal on people who not at all would ever have argued that they were neoliberal. And of course, we don't really mean to do that. We mean to, to say that neoliberalism was a really large transformational process, and it was necessary for this process to be legitimate and to have an effect that it worked through a very large complex of different social actors from very different levels and scales in society. If we look at the Nordic countries then, and the Nordic countries are known for the welfare state, so how does neoliberalism fit into that, into the welfare state? It sounds like the opposite to a lot of people. Right. So for a long time, the hypothesis of the social sciences was that the Nordics were an exception to a neoliberalization process that happened elsewhere. 
And so the Nordics were always in an oppositional stance to, for instance, the Anglo-Saxon countries, the UK and the US, and to the continental countries like France or Germany or Italy. And the idea behind that was that there was an, an inherent opposition or dichotomy between state and market. And so the welfare state, which in terms of an ideal type would seem to have a set of objectives that are very different from neoliberal objectives and have to do with social justice and equality and not with market mobility, and which also created a set of institutions that were designed to create limits to the markets and boundaries to the markets and protect individuals. The hypothesis was always that this was an oppositional relationship. And also that social democracy stood in an oppositional relationship to neoliberalism. But it's not empirically true. So we know very well now that social democracy has seen a process of neoliberalization. We don't necessarily have to call it neoliberal, but we know that there are affinities between the contemporary social democratic project and the, and the neoliberal project. And in a similar way, we also know from the welfare state literature that welfare states have been quintessentially involved in fostering marketization processes and have made use of the market as an instrumentality, perhaps not always as an objective, but as an instrumentality. And therefore, I think we could actually posit the opposite hypothesis, not that the welfare state was somehow a protection against neoliberalism, but rather a question to do with in which ways the very fact that there was the presence of a strong and socially interventionist and perhaps also sometimes a rather authoritarian or at least order-prone state, in fact, advance marketization processes. And I think that Sweden would be a good example of this. So if we look back in time then, what has happened since the 1970s and maybe even before that? So this process of neoliberalization in Sweden or in other Nordic countries? It's a really large and difficult question. And we're also in the in the very beginning of our, our research in pandemic times. So I guess I would say that very often we see the 1970s as a kind of breaking point. And there is this idea, in fact, in contemporary history or so in German, there is this term called Zeitgeschichte, which I have adverse relations to, but but that always divides the, the post-war period up in two. So first there is this, what French historians call the Trente Glorieuses, so the 30 glorious years of progress and full employment and spending and consumption and so on. And after that, we come into the 1970s. And then in the 1970s, a set of crises on different levels collide. So we have the economic crisis of the oil crisis, OPEC 1 and 2, which in fact were something else. They were really a global confrontation between the third world and the industrial world. We had the environmental challenge, so the idea that there were limits to economic development and that we had to think differently about the relationship between man and nature and economic resources. We have the crisis that we tend to call post-Fordism, so deindustrialization in the Western world and also the advent of new working patterns, the end of industrial work, service economies, and also the 1970s seemed to mark some kind of cultural revolution and, and large-scale value change around individualization and individualism. So people who do no longer, for instance, have a strong class concept or who do no longer accept, let's say, the welfare statist order as a kind of, of disciplinarist order, which of course it also was. So we tend to think about the 1970s as this massive crisis era. I think that one of the things that we find in the program is that you have to try to move away from this 
periodization, which is very strong. And you have to open it up somewhat, or at least try to open it up. And we're trying to think about neoliberalism really as something that involves a set of different timescales. So one of the things that I find really interesting is that many of the neoliberal arguments in the Nordic countries revoke what is in the Scandinavian language is known as planhusholningsdebatten, so the great planning debate of the immediate war period, so between 45 and 48 which began as a debate around nationalization. And then when social democratic parties in the Nordic countries backed away from nationalization, there was a social compromise around a certain level of planning in coexistence with the price mechanism in a number of different sectors of the economy. And it seems to me that one of the stories in a multitude of different storylines is a story about how that great planning debate, in fact, was never quite settled. And so we tend to speak in political history in the Nordics about the mixed model, the in-between model, because the Nordic models were never the perfect socialist model, which was, of course, took place behind the the Iron Curtain. And they were also not capitalist models, but they were this in-between model. And I think that one of the interesting things about neoliberalism is that it undoes ideas of the existence of that in-between model, because neoliberalism basically says you can't have both. You cannot have both planning and the price mechanism. It's impossible. In order to understand that, we need to work with that longer time period. We need to go all the way back to 1945 and look at these things that weren't settled. And I think actually that there are other things that could be said for having to go back even to the 1860s, 1870s, because there were also big debates then that somehow leave issues that aren't settled and that therefore can come back at a different point in time. So you have to look at a lot of different layers to really come to the roots of this, or? Exactly, which is difficult. So I won't tell you exactly how we would do that, but we're working with with this idea of different timescales and we're drawing different timelines. And I think that another way of thinking about those different timelines is to think about different actor constellations and actor positions. And one of the ways maybe of thinking about neoliberalism in the Nordics is to think about groups that were not included in the welfare state or who did not have the welfare state as their dominant future horizon. So in Nordic historiography, the welfare state plays a a gigantic role. So it's really part of of our myths of national community and belonging and so on. But I think one of the things that is quite striking from from the historical material is that neoliberalism seems to be a lot about those voices that during a long, long part of the 20th century were rather marginal. So for instance, I'll, I'll take an example, which is a doctor that I found who is who has his own private clinic and he's outraged by the socialization of medicine. So that brings him into the field of public debate. And for a long time, he's a very marginal voice. But then in the 1980s, that's a voice that grows and that eventually becomes a voice for the advocation of free choice in in healthcare. What about, I mean, you have like the broad concept of the Nordic countries, but what kind of differences and similarities are there between these countries? I think one of the things that really stand out is that Sweden has had by far the most dramatic marketization change and has gone further down the road than, than the other countries have. So so Sweden, this is a, a public fact that is very often stated in the public debate, but it's true. Sweden is the only one of these welfare states that has a pronounced for-profit interest in welfare, in welfare services. We don't find that anywhere else, which is not the same thing as private initiatives. So for instance, Denmark has 
a great philanthropical charity sector in the welfare state, but it's not a, pro a for-profit sector. There are different similarities and differences between the Nordics. So I would say that Denmark and Sweden are have seen similar kinds of debates around the welfare state, starting actually quite early on in the 1960s with protests, for instance, against things like tariffs on agricultural products. And we don't really see that in Norway or in Finland. Finland is always a difficult case because Finland is a, is a completely different geopolitical story, but there has been a lot of, of similarity between Finnish and Swedish labor market policies, for instance. Norway, again, is a difficult story with its oil fund, which some people would say is, is a very neoliberal artifact. I think one of the things that is interesting is that the Nordics have different trajectories vis-a-vis -vis marketization for at least two reasons, I think. The first one is that the legacies of liberalism and social democracy are different between the different Nordic countries. And therefore, the trajectories of, of neoliberal debates are also different. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that the Nordics have a fairly different, actually, history of recent economic crisis. So, for instance, the 1970s crisis is very important in Sweden and Denmark. The 1990s recession is very important in Sweden and Finland. The financial crisis in 2008 is very important in Sweden, not so in Norway, for instance. So there are different ways of, of thinking about these similarities and differences. So let's look a little bit at uh, practice then. How is neoliberalism applied and experienced in everyday life? I'm thinking a little bit about the experiences and expectations of society. I think this is the most intriguing question in the program. It's also very difficult. Why is it difficult? Because it's difficult to access people's everyday lives. And I guess that if we were ethnologists or anthropologists, we would go out and interview people or do focus groups or something like that, but we're historians. And so we've, we've been thinking a lot about how to access materials that can speak for the intimacy of people's everyday lives and their visions of the future. An interesting example in the program, I think, is David Larsson Heidenblad, who is a historian from, from Lund, and he works on financial diaries. The note keeping that people took about things like their savings habits, but also how young people, for instance, in the 1980s were encouraged to start not only a savings account, which has has always been a strong feature of, of social life in the Nordic countries, but starting to, to buy shares, for instance, and becoming better at that and learning about the stock market. So I've, I think that is an, one of the, these interesting things, and particularly how that speaks to young people and how it makes them think about their life expectations. Another example is Orsi Hus, who's an, an economic historian at Uppsala. And Orsi works on credit cards. And credit cards is a really fascinating artifact. And Orsi brings this out really well, that a credit card is really sort of a concentration of future expectations and horizons. And they came with this entire marketization apparatus in Sweden in the 60s and 70s. That was all about breaking with the idea that you had to save first and then spend because now you could spend first and pay back later. So those are examples, but we're still thinking about this and I'm still thinking about something that I think is, is important, which is we should, as historians, quite generally think more about things like oral history, for instance, how we could collect more materials about how, how people think about themselves in these very turbulent decades. Yeah, because there's a lot of debate going on also about a lot of these issues, I mean, as you mentioned, healthcare, schools, and so on. People have a lot of discussions about this. 
They do. One of the materials that I'm working on, for instance, is advertising materials from private providers. And those things talk to certain expectations around what a marketized welfare state should do. But it's harder to get to the client side of things. So the people that they were talking to, that's much more difficult. But if you think about that, that has arguably been a very foundational experience in people's lives, that we have new bureaucracies. They're not necessarily less bureaucratic than the welfare state, but they make for new meetings between people and the welfare state apparatus when it is a private provider who operates the the service. And the question, of course, would be, what does that mean? Is there a connection to new public management? Because that's another thing that has been increasing and that is discussed a lot. Absolutely. In fact, the, the problem complex that we're dealing with has been mainly approached from the concept of new public management. So we have a lot of, of really important and good studies about new public management. And new public management is a lot about neoliberalism as a form of governmentality. So governmentality being Foucault's term. And it describes a kind of rewiring of the rationality of government and the way that that authority is exercised through these instrumentalities that come, for instance, with mock markets in the welfare state or with treating people who were previously patients as as a kind of client or people who were pupils as a kind of, of, of client. So I guess we're lucky we can fall back on those studies. We don't have to really do them. And we haven't asked any specific questions to do with, with new public management. What we're we're asking questions about is about subjectivities. So how does neoliberalism transform subjectivities and which are the subjectivities that are promoted by neoliberalism? So the welfare state came with a certain repertoire of, of subjectivities. For instance, a group that often gets forgotten is housewives. There were lots of housewives in the welfare state, but worker, of course, income earner solidaristic workers, benefit owners, and neoliberalism has an, a different range of subjectivities. So one of those, for instance, being the risk taker or the entrepreneur, but also the speculant, people who think differently about goods like, for instance, their house in terms of now thinking about it as a speculative investment, or pupils choosing an education as a speculative investment. And new public management, in fact, does the same thing. It speaks to people with a new language, so it projects subjectivities. But we're interested in doing that in, a, I guess, a different set of fields, which is everything from, from housing to patient care. You said previously that the inequalities have sort of increased, and or that that is what we're seeing now. So thinking about these different groups and society also, what can you see there? Like, if you think about gender and ethnicity there. So I think one of the things that is very important in a social history of this is to remember that there were groups who felt excluded by the welfare state, just as there are groups who feel excluded by the market, obviously. And so a very noticeable phenomenon in the Nordic countries is a new kind of liberal feminism in the 80s and 90s, which reclaims the idea of feminism from what they call state feminism, which they identify with the, the socialist and social democrat feminist organizations and that associate feminism rather with the market. So thereby seeing the market as a possible vehicle for a kind of, of female identity for which there was not space in the welfare state and who also identified the welfare state with a kind of state subvention patriarchy. So I would say that's one thing. And the other thing that I think is really important is immigrant groups. 
and I, I know personally from many anecdotes and so on from friends who are my age that it was certainly so that for many of the immigrant communities who came to Sweden, I mean, the 1970s is an era of mass immigration, and then that comes to an end in the mid 70s. But their first generation and second generation, which is of my age, have had a completely different experience of the welfare state than my generation of Swedish-born ethnic Swedes has had, because there were multiple excluding effects. And I don't want to blame them for neoliberalism, so this is not how one should understand what I'm trying to say. But within that generation were certainly groups that thought that statist structures were more closed and that market structures could provide opportunities. For instance, in things like free schools or things like entrepreneurship and small cell phone companies, etc. So I think that's that's just a really important part of this story to understand that there were also very different positions and different future horizons embedded with this welfare state complex. So again, a lot of different layers there of complexity. It sounds like you have quite a lot to um, look at in your research program. <laughs> we do. And I know that it can be baffling, but I like complexity. I always worked with complexity. I like paradox and complexity. I'm not a great fan of the simple account because most things in social life are complex and contradictory. And I think that we, you know, good history writing to me oftentimes is that which emphasizes paradox and complexity. You're a historian, you look back in time and uh, usually you get the answer that historians don't look into the future, but what can come after neoliberalism? I'll answer this question in a slightly roundabout way. So I think it matters a lot for historians whether they see the process that they're working on as concluded or not. Is it finished or not? Because the end point changes your observation. And we can't do that. And this is one of the reasons why, why contemporary history is very difficult, but also, in my view, extremely important. Because obviously, the end point changes all the time. And so already, from my perspective, the program has changed how I see the history of the welfare state, because I now see a different set of endings from when I was a PhD student and started working now 20 years ago. And I can imagine that the end point will look different six years from now when we're finished and that that will be also a rereading then from that position. And I think that neoliberalism has many endings, probably. And some of those will be left unsettled, just as there were things unsettled from the beginning of the 20th century or from the interwar period that we still see coming back up today. But I think that one of the fundamental questions, and I am not at all sure that we will answer it in the program, but I'm, I'm hoping that someone will has to do with the disappointment and disenchantments of the neoliberal project. So it seems to me that part of the legitimacy of neoliberalism, and this is a, an uncomfortable point because I think we need to recognize that some of these changes were perhaps not desired in the sense that people did not necessarily go out and vote for them. So we never had a vote on a changed labor market system or a changed social policy system in Sweden, or at least not directly. But many changes were probably indirectly kind of popular. So for instance, being able to make a considerable income from buying your apartment and then selling it, or from choosing a school, some of these things have been popular in the sense that people do embrace them as choices. 
And I think that they did that because they vehicled a certain sense of aspiration, a certain sense of something that could be gained. I'm not at all convinced that all of the gains were economic. I think it said something about social mobility and societal prestige and societal freedom and perhaps also creativity and, and security. And it seems to me in any case that part of the sort of post-neoliberal condition will be about what happens to people's failed future expectations when in fact the market did not deliver what it said that it that it would, which I think actually describes the contemporary context quite well. But I don't think we'll really do that in the program. It will be hard, but maybe we can think about it at some point. And I, I think that there are lots of really good social scientists that are thinking about this today. But it seems clear to me that neoliberalism has created a set of tensions in contemporary societies that have partly to do with these unfulfilled expectations and aspirations. So as I said in the introduction, this podcast episode is within the theme of global governance. So now can you apply the findings on neoliberalism in the Nordics on a more global scale? What do you think? Well, I think that neoliberalism has changed the idea of the Nordics, which for a long time was and is perhaps still this iconic set of countries in the north of Europe with polar bears and great equality. And it's increasingly well known in the world that that is not simply so anymore. I think in particular Sweden, this is more and more understanding that, that there has been profound changes in Sweden. And it always leads to distressed account in Sweden that there is now something wrong with the image of Sweden and we have to fix it because they need to believe that we are this happy country where people are happy and equal. But so the global image of the Nordics has changed with neoliberalism. And it's become more about things like dynamism, economic dynamism, economic creativity, competitiveness, new products, financial instruments, being climate smart, so not reducing economic activity, but investing in green technology, for instance. So we do see profound changes in the label or the Nordic brand, what the Nordics are about. And sometimes I think that's a very paradoxical development, and I think it's perhaps detrimental to some of the understanding of what the Nordics are about. So I'm, I'm not sure, for instance, that a great emphasis on, on competition and entrepreneurship really goes hand in hand with ideas of social equality. So there's, full, it, there's lots of contradictions in those, in those images. I think that another, another way of answering the question is not really about the image of the Nordics, but it's about the place of the Nordics in global political economy, which has also changed with neoliberalism. And I think that on the global level, one could make a set of quite different arguments. So for instance, one of the things that I've written about before and which brought me to neoliberalism was about the so-called limits to growth debate in 1972. So this big debate about a, a Club of Rome report that launched much of the environmental controversy and that also led eventually to ideas of sustainability. And at the same time, in the early 1970s, is a lot of arguments from the third world about sovereignty over their resources, economic autonomy, and so on. So actually, one of the first things that I did on neoliberalism was to see how, how the Western world reacted to that, and also how Western companies or multinational companies reacted to that. And they did so, in fact, very defensively by saying that we had to strengthen Western industrialism, increase the competitive pressure and embrace a set of solutions that in fact are the precursors to what we understand as neoliberal. 
And the Nordics were not at all outside of that. So Nordic chambers of commerce discussed environmentalism as a possible problem for the Nordic image and were then very concerned to rebrand the Nordic countries as environmentally sustainable. And Nordic companies include some of the very large multinational companies that have also been quintessentially involved with third world relationships. So I think one of the challenges to historians, in fact, would be to examine that. And I hope we can do just at least some of that in the program. Yes, it will be interesting to follow up on that later on. You have touched briefly on the pandemic, which we're all affected by now, both in our private and professional lives. Right now, for example, we are doing a distant recording, although we are both in the same town, to minimize the risk of transmission of the virus. But your own research, how has that been influenced by the pandemic this past year? I think that we have been profoundly influenced by the pandemic in the sense that We are a very enthusiastic group of scholars, and I, I've tried to bring in everyone's research because I, I find it so interesting what everyone is doing in the program. And when we first met, we literally met in January. And then two months later, all of our planning just went out the window. And when we met, you could have sort of touched the creativity in that room. It was really, we are a very enthusiastic group of scholars, and we were just in the process of Or what, and in fact, in academic work is really difficult, this kind of realizing that, oh, you work on that. And that's where the connection is, because we, we think that this is something that we all always manage to do, but actually it's a very delicate process. And I think we were just in that phase. And so on the one hand, I want to say that we've been totally sidelined. And on the other, I would like to say also that, and, and including for Ari, if Ari is listening to the podcast that we quite quickly stepped into a different mode and started reorganizing and did things electronically and on Zoom and digitally and so on. And so we have managed to keep up that conversation, but it's boring, it's time consuming, it kills energy in a sense. And I think that one of the really fundamental things that affects us and that affects historians as an academic group is that one of the casualties of the pandemic is that the access to materials is really difficult. So we cannot simply download digital data. We need archives. And I'm a great believer in the actual archive, in the physical documents and in having to go there and consult them. And that has been extremely difficult this year. So the material you need, not everything is available online then? Not everything is available online, and I don't think that everything will ever be available online. So we spoke a little bit in the preparation of this podcast about digitalization. And as an historian, I'm quite concerned that one of the effects of the pandemic will be to strengthen calls for digitalization, which in a sense is fair enough. But I think it should be recognized that digitalization is always a selective strategy. It's never about digitalizing everything. And I, I am a person who has worked a lot in things that were not digitalized, including actually having to go to people's homes and go through their belongings and their attics. And I think if we stop doing that work, we will lose something from the history profession. And I don't think we'll be able to, to tell the story, the full story of these decades from the digital materials. I simply don't think so. I can give many examples of why that just is not possible in my view. 
Could you just give one example? I did work in the in the OECD archive, so the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris. And they have a fairly good archive, but they're not a, a public institution, so they have no obligation to keep it in, in good shape. It's a, it's a good archive. But when I came there, they gave me a USB stick, which contained all of the materials about this report that I was interested in. And I got frustrated because I, I want to go through the boxes. <laughs> mainly because I like boxes, but also because I know that there is something in the structure of how an archival material becomes compiled, but it's not immediately transferable to the electronic version on the USB stick. And it took me several visits and in fact involving lots of colleagues and asking around to understand that actually they had not digitalized everything. So there were still records, but that had not been digitalized. They had simply come to the conclusion that probably I just needed this stuff. And today, historians work a lot with materials that are, for instance, things like lists of invitations to people who will come to a meeting. And it seems unintelligible why anyone would like to look at that list, but it tells you who was there. It tells you what the transnational networks were like. And another material that we really like are things like draft notes or notes that people have left on. Oftentimes, they, we use post-its, but, but in the 70s, people used um, a paperclip and they put something in writing, like, please have a look at this again, because I, I don't agree with the conclusion that inflation should be more important than combating unemployment. Those are the things that are really important, and I don't think they will ever be digital. So I should keep all my small notes with lists and interview questions and so on. For our era, the problem is infinitely larger than, than that. <laughs> which is that we don't even produce written material. So I don't really know what will happen. Of course, there are in the digitalization debate people who think very sophisticatedly about this. But I see a propensity among historians to go for the simple route. And I think that in pandemic life, this becomes clearly a temptation and maybe we all have to accept it for a while. But at least I wish that we remember to have a critical discussion about the limitations of digitalization and which materials become digitalized. And then at last, I mean, maybe going to the archives is also a way of stepping into the material and into the bubble and really disappear into it for a while and, and be there and discover things that you didn't know you were looking for, or? I think so, but I, it's hard to put words on this because it's a romantic feeling. It's a, there's a romantic, romanticness about it. But I think that anthropologists feel the same when they go and do fieldwork and immerse themselves somewhere for a long time. And an archive can be like that. It can be an historical world that you come into and it takes you a long time to understand it. And then suddenly you understand it. Personally, I think that that is the limitation of the digital material is that you don't have that entire experience, which of course is extremely time consuming and difficult, very oftentimes frustrating. I'm not even sure that we can teach it anymore. I'm not sure how to teach it to students. As someone who's worked a lot in transnational archives, which means that you don't even come to an identified archive. You have a topic which means that you have to puzzle with one piece of the puzzle here and one piece of the puzzle somewhere completely different. Like for, for me, one was in Honolulu, one, one was in Bucharest, another piece was in Warsaw, another piece was in New York, and one was in Stockholm. That's really painstaking stuff. And you learn so much when you try to put those pieces of the puzzle together. And of course, digitalization would have been great because I would have been able to access probably much more. But I simply don't think that those materials that I worked on, which then concerned 
futurology and futurists, which is a, a sort of half crazy topic, I, I don't think they will be first in line for digitalization. We could talk a little bit about different research environments. You were the principal investigator or leading this research program that spans across several disciplines. You mentioned eight universities being involved. So how did you think that from the beginning when you assembled your research group? What do you need to answer your research questions? This is always a difficult process. I think that it's always a dialectical process between trying to identify the people that you want to work with, that somehow spark your curiosity and that you find interesting. And then, of course, trying to steer those people, but also understanding which way they would want to go. Because one of the great benefits of working with large grants is that you are able to work with people who can do many things that you yourself cannot and be exposed to their particular competence and their particular historical skills or language skills or, or skills in, in many different possible areas. And personally, that's part of the things that make me want to be an historian. I want to learn from others. So I'm very happy to work in those kinds of environments because I just quite simply think that we see so much more as a group than we do as individual scholars. And something in the joining of different materials and different subject matters brings out a whole that is larger than those, those components. But creating a good research environment is a very difficult thing. So I think I'm really lucky. This is a, is a very pleasant group of people and everyone, I think everyone was somehow seduced by the topic and perhaps a little skeptical at the beginning, thinking that this is just a big label. And then when we in fact started deconstructing things, well, I think one of the things that happened is when academic sort of realized that, oh, hold on, that is exactly what my stuff is actually about. And we've had multiple such eureka moments. And I think that in the end, that's really what brings a group together. You can have other reasons for constructing a research environment. It can be simply thematic interest or practical work organization. But I think here, and also the ambition of the RE programs is to really create that kind of dynamic and to make sure that it's not a pile of different individual projects, but actually something that works together as a larger dynamic. We've had Jenny Larsson previously as a guest who also has this project about the origin of Indo-European languages, which is also financed by RI. So that's a similarly large approach. Yes, it is. And in Jenny's program, I can perfectly see the rationality also because it's very different disciplinarist orientations between archaeology and the DNA material and the linguistic science and also the myth the mythology part. And I guess the proximity between us in my program is larger because we're less separated than that, because we're united by the historical disciplines. But between myself, who's a conceptual historian, and for instance, Eric Bengtsson in the program, who's a quantitative scholar, there still are large differences. And they, it's really important, I think, that those two things communicate and come together. Is this a new thing, this large project with interdisciplinarity and the humanities? say yes and, and no. There have been a number of such large projects before, I think, already in the 1980s. There was, for instance, a large historical project in Sweden, which was about Sweden's history during the Second World War and Sweden's role in the Second World War. 
So there have certainly been environments like that before, and there are research environments that are structured like programs, if you think about Humla Binumio, for instance. But it's true that scholars in the humanities and social sciences often express a certain reluctance to work in big teams, because we understand the big team to be about the technical or natural sciences. But I don't think you have to translate their method of working just because you're working as a group. You can still respect, for instance, the individual study, which I think is a key thing in the humanities and social sciences, but still work together. You don't have to publish an article with 12 authors. You can still work together. It takes more respect, perhaps, because the propriety regimes are different. So in the in the natural sciences, you all sign and therefore you all own the article. Of course, for us, if we work both on our individual studies and then on something collectively as a whole, it takes a lot of trust building to be sure that you can give some of your material away without losing it. But that is also what academia is. Academia is trust. You were a guest of the principal at SCAS during the spring of 2019. How was your stay here at SCAS? It was an excellent stay at SCAS. It was very nice. I've had several such very nice stays in my life. And I, I liked also very much when I was at college in Oxford. I could get up in the morning and go to breakfast and come back and find my bed made and then go to lunch. And SCAS was a little bit like that. I had to make my own bed, but it was very nice with organized lunches. And it was also a an excellent team of scholars, including Jenny Lashon that year. And we had a lot of both fun and very interesting conversations, as I think one does at SCAS. And I also had a lot of time to really work on my research after some very intensive years in Paris. So it was a very, very good time for me. So how does that type of multidisciplinary environment contribute to your own research when you really have scholars from quite some different uh, disciplines and areas of, of academia? I'm a huge believer in multidisciplinarity, but I also think it's one of these words that is sometimes like internationalism is imposed. Multidisciplinarity has to begin in an interest for another scholar's perspective. And I think we're really living through a time in the humanities and social sciences where we see cross-disciplinary work really opening up entirely new boundaries of research. So Yenny Lash's program is an excellent example of that. But I mean, you can find much more nuanced examples of it. For instance, I would say my home discipline, economic history, has very recently started to begin working with intellectual history. And that is opening up new frontiers, for instance, around notions of how multinational corporations have acted as political actors or as ideational actors. So that kind of thing is constantly ongoing in academia. What I think is clear is that we live in, in an era where there can be very, very large grants for cross-disciplinary investigation. For instance, in fields like artificial intelligence or genetics or the environmental humanities or the medical humanities. And I think that's great. And I also think that those sort of things risk becoming new infrastructures and new bureaucracies of their, of their own. So one always has to keep a, an eye also for how such things may, over a longer time period, end up creating new disciplinary boundaries, actually. Thank you very much for joining me on SCAS Talks and talking to me about your exciting research. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the third and final episode in the theme Global Governance. This time I have talked to Jenny Andersson, professor in the history of ideas at Uppsala University, about her research on neoliberalism in the Nordic countries. In the previous episodes on global governance, we have heard David Sipley on constitutional democracy and the cooperation, and Bruce Carruthers on the topic of trust, credit and credit ratings as the basis of a modern economy. These are episodes number 10 and 11, if you want to listen. In this episode, Jenny Andersson and me have also touched upon the work of Jenny Larsson. You can hear more about that in episode number four, a treasure hunt to find the origin of the Indo-European languages. We are currently working on more episodes of SCAS Talks within the following topics. Africa, the brain and life in outer space. The variety of the topics and scholars is a direct reflection of the multidisciplinary environment at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, and we hope that you find something of interest for you. In the next episode, we will hear more about the study of autism from Pro Futura scholar Terje Falk Utter. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Jenny Andersson once again for joining SCAS Talks and of course you for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>